0: All right, so uh, we are going to walk through the passage that was just read, First John chapter 2. Uh, before we get there, and as you're finding it your way in your own Bibles, I um, just wanted to give a couple of encouragements. Uh, one, uh, I'd love for you to plan to join us on May 23rd. We're going to have a family meeting after the service, and then we're going to try and go out and have a, a family picnic together. Uh, that'll be neat. Uh, those are... Those family means, congregational means. we have at least two a year uh, where we celebrate what's been going on in the church, but also uh, pray for one another and pray for the church body. Uh, one of the things that we hope to know more on as we continue to pray is uh, the steps that we're making toward uh, encouraging and being part of church planting uh, locally or regionally. And just a few updates are kind of cool, kind of surprising too, is that back in 2018, 2019, as people were praying, like, it felt more that maybe the Lord would help us start a church in Anamosa and maybe see God bring something to the, do that. And that led to some encouragement for people to come and pray. And when we started praying, there wasn't a lot of things materializing. But even just in the last three, four, or five months, some things that are, you know, I would say are coming out of nowhere, but we prayed, right? And then uh, several months, last couple of months, um, There's someone in the Anamosa area who's very uh, intentional about uh, going to like build a space that could also be used uh, for a church. Uh, There's uh, someone in the Central District of the Evangelical Free Church who is transitioning out of ministry, who's praying about possibly coming and planting a church in potentially in that area. And then along the way, the Central District of the Evangelical Free Church is wanting to churches in the Eastern Iowa Cornerstone We wanted to to be more intentional about seeing multiplication in the region. And so that's just what happens when you pray with a big God, because we've done like none of that. And that always excites me. So just join, be in prayer, and hopefully maybe at the Congregational meeting on May 23rd, there'll be more to report, um, particularly for this person who's considering in their kind of ministry transition to be, to join in church planting. So I'm excited, and uh, just fun to see God work. Uh, When he's in control, things go well. When Matt Proctor's in control, well, that's not good. Um, I'm just going to pray again. Lord, I just want to, as we transition right to this text and this sermon, uh, I need your help, and we need your help. Uh, Thank you that you minister through the word. Thank you that you still speak, and you still encourage. You still offer peace. Uh, So join us, we pray. Amen. Uh, I would say it's just as heart-wrenching uh, as anything uh, to, to see someone you love walk away from the faith. Uh, it, it, we see people walk away from Jesus. They leave the church. They leave Christianity altogether. Um, I would say in some ways, though, this past year has been hard enough for me. Uh, I've also just been watching a close friend have some really deep faith struggles Uh, And I would like to say that that's uh, a rare occasion, but I would say, in all honesty, it's not. Um, Youth pastor for four or five years, I saw kids passionate about Jesus in high school grow very cold to Christ in college. Um, I've seen some of the beloved writers of the faith leave entirely and apostatize. I've seen, you know, gifted pastors or preachers crash and burn. And I know that I'm not alone I would say, if I have any extended conversation with someone in this church, there's usually someone on your heart who is no longer close to Jesus. And it, you know it, 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 and every single time I think this happens, I think our faith is shaken. It might be huge, it might be minor, uh, but we, we, we start replaying things. We start we wonder, did we say the right things? Uh, we, we wonder if we misunderstood Christianity or misrepresented it to other people. Uh, but sometimes it's even more earth-shaking, sha- earth and we begin to have our own doubts. We begin to maybe start fixating on some of the ugly things that are true of our church or the greater church. We start questioning key spiritual truths and doctrines that four or five years ago, we never would have questioned. Um, And maybe maybe even get to the point where you start considering going out the same door that someone has already gone before. And when I look at this text in John, it it just says that that this has been a struggle for Christians for centuries. Uh, The passage here is to hopefully bolster some confidence and give you some peace, but also to not be ignorant That these things happen, he wants to instruct us. On one hand, but I also believe that John is trying to motivate us and encourage us to have peace, to to hold on. Uh, But we hold on because God's holding on. We hold on because God's holding on. Uh, But you know, let's dive in. Um, He's encouraging, but it's the context or what's going on that that requires the encouragement. What necessitates this word on encouragement, and he says that there is this shocking reality going on among the people that this, who are receiving this letter, that it says that there are antichrists afoot, and they are active in what he calls the last hour. Antichrists are active in the last hour. Now, when you use the expression "last hour," antichrists, some people in the room, like you're starting to salivate. Like a lion before red meat, like anything related to Antichrist and end times, like this is great. There's others of you who have been so frustrated by people fixating on this that, like, you're already pulling out your smartphone to check in on Minecraft. Um, there is this. There is this need, though, for uh, the scripture to keep us sober-minded on both sides of this issue. To know this is there are realities in these end times that we need to face but also realize there's other things, other realities to face. But let's dig in. Uh, Verse 18, John writes, he says, Dear children, so he starts this with this paternal, loving word, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have come, this is how we know that is the last hour. So even right away, I want you to hear some subtle encouragement. He's saying, like, we're not unaware that these things happen, brothers and sisters. You know this. You've been taught this. This is not new information. Uh, but he, he brings up some expressions that maybe need some redefining or clear defining. Uh, one is he said, he uses the reference, the last hour. The last hour. And then he actually defines it for us. What is the last hour? The last hour is the time in human history when people in opposition to Christ are active. That's how he knows it's the last hour because antichrists are active. Now, it's important to know that the Judeo-Christian mind or even the Hebrew mind, like they don't ha- think about time like westerners do. Like westerners we have we have date books and we think about years and minutes and hours. But the the Hebrew mind, or even this, the early Judeo-Christian mind, it thinks of in eras, in epics. And so, when he says this last hour has come, he's not talking about minutes; he's talking about an epic. You know, the epics for most Hebrew-minded people, Judeo-Christian mind, you know, it begins with the age of innocence, right? Creation, Adam and Eve walking with God, and. And then the age of ignorance moves to the era of the fall when people reject God. And you read the book of Genesis, that first era includes, you know, the, the beginning of murder with Cain and Abel, the spiraling down unto evil that leads to the flood. And then even after the flood, the people's hearts are so full of themselves that there has to be this scattering at the Tower of Babel. And then you, there's, this, there's this little pause until you switch into the era of the patriarchs, when God comes to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and says, I'm going to do something marvelous in through in and through your line. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. And all looks well by the end of the book of Genesis until you turn to Exodus chapter 1. <laughs> and now it's this era of slavery in Exodus, uh, slavery in Egypt. And the Hebrew and Israelites, who are supposed to be these blessed ones of God, are under bondage, and arises God's deliverer, Moses. And really, the time of Moses, the time of the Mosaic law, leads all the way up to the time of the Messiah. And it includes the conquest, it includes the kings, and it includes the the destruction and judgment that falls on Israel and Jerusalem. But then... We preach, Messiah has come. The time of Christ has come. And he has this earthly life that is beautiful, and yet evil raises its head, crushes Jesus, and yet he rises on the third day. And now we are in the age of Christ. This is the church age. But because this is the age of Christ, the church age, there's also going to be anti those who oppose Messiah Jesus, now, this isn't rocket science. In the idea of rocket science, as you think about like the organization PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, they wouldn't exist if there wasn't some concern that animals get mistreated. Or MAD, M A D D, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Right, this organization would not exist if there wasn't some concern related to drunk driving. We are in the the time of Christ, and therefore there are antichrists, and they are afoot, and we need to watch for them. That's what's going on. Also note that in verse 18, he does mention that at the very end, right, he says, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. So John is saying there's Antichrist now, there's always, for all time, in the time of Christ, there will be Antichrist, and one day there will be a, one who raises themselves above all the others, and he is coming uh, the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 gives some more descriptions of this final Antichrist. It's worthwhile to read that. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, uh, Paul writes, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed, by the, alleged, the teaching allegedly coming from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God, or his worship, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So John and Paul both say, "There's coming this man of lawlessness who will do what, everything they can to get all of the worship and praise that is due to God." He is coming, and one of the reasons why I think we always wonder is this: the generation for that antichrist is because there's always people pushing against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every generation, there's people who are pushing, and so it's always tempting to push back and go, well, maybe it's that guy. Maybe it's him, maybe it's her. Maybe it's that movement, maybe it's that organization. Um, and yet, again, John is here less about having you be crazy alarmed, but actually to have peace. And actually, that's what Paul said in Second Thessalonians 2. I don't tell these things to unsettle you, but to settle you. These things will occur. These things are occurring. Fear not. Press on. Hold on to God. He's holding on to you. Let me just go back and and briefly talk about uh, some of the descriptions that John gives of what it would be to be an antichrist. What do they do? What do they look like? How would you define them, see them, discover them? And he really gives three short descriptions. And one of them is they pull out of biblical community. Two, they deny fundamental doctrines. And three, they undermine holy living, or they undermine righteous living. So this first quality says in verse 19, it says they, this is referring back to Antichrist, they went out from us. But they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belong to us. So there's something in the heart of an Antichrist that resists biblical community. Right, to be a part of a church requires a lot of humility and a lot of love. Uh, but Antichrist won't stick around for long. They were once in, but now they're out. Um one of the things that I would say reading church history and just living my life, a lot of these uh, people who had started in the church and now come outside this church and start opposing Christ in the church, usually they had been offended in the church and say so they run out the door. Uh, they often have blame pushed against the church. The church wasn't uh, godly enough. The church didn't talk about the right issues enough. The uh, pastoral staff or community wasn't caring enough. Uh, And and it usually just starts with kind of this high sense of we know what the church was supposed to be. They didn't do it. We're out of here. I think sometimes an antichrist uh, is like that talented athlete who always drops off the basketball team because they don't want to listen to the coach or play with the less great players. Uh, Antichrists are like the person who has a tough time keeping a job because the boss is always too demanding and the other employees are always difficult to work with. And Antichrist, they resist biblical community. So on one hand, we need to watch out for that, be aware of that. But I also say we also need to look inward. Looking at our own hearts. Do I resist biblical community? Do I have reasons to, to slander and malign the church? Like, they're always failing. I'm holy, right? I've got it figured out. This is how church is supposed to be, but they're not with it. And then, you know, we watch our own heart. Are we tempted to to church hop? Never, never find the right church. John says this is the last hour, and Satan is always trying to recruit Antichrist. So what do they look like? One, they resist biblical community. Second, it says they deny fundamental doctrines. This is what we see in verses twenty two and twenty three. Twenty two says, "Who is the liar?" It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ, such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. And no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father. So Antichrist, they they play with core truths. And there's no more fundamental doctrine than those related to the person of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Antichrists deny that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that we need salvation. We need his blood. We need his sacrifice. But also Antichrist will deny the the, the equal divinity of Father and Son. They deny the the work of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. Uh, Some of you are familiar that kind of the two biggest movements that that counter uh, the doctrine of who Jesus is would be the Jehovah Witnesses and uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as Mormons. Both of those uh, movements teach many good things, but both would deny the Trinity. They would deny the equal relationship of God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, An Antichrist rejecting fundamental doctrines is like a Trekkie denying that Spock was Vulcan. Right, it's, a, it's a Cubs fan who doesn't love Harry Carey. It's denying that Bruce May, Bruce Wayne was Batman. Right. And the reason why I say that is that Paul, John is saying, well, you'll notice this. You'll see this. This is these simple truths of Jesus is one, you know, fully God and fully man. Come back for Sunday school. We're talking about that. Um, you know that that's truth. And so when you hear people uh, playing with these core doctrines of who Jesus is and what he has done, watch out, be aware. But you're not, you're not unaware of these sorts of schemes, you've seen it before. You know, but you don't have to be, you know, in a a Christian cult, right, to deny a fundamental doctrine. You can go to a church with an accurate statement of faith on paper, but it gets rejected in practice. Or it's a head nod, maybe even a smirk toward good doctrine. But it's not practiced and held and protected and preserved. Those who are for Christ, right, so not anti-Christ, those who are for Christ, We're going to receive God's word. We're going to treasure his commandments. We're going to embrace his doctrines. We don't look for loopholes. We don't reject the faith that has been once for all passed down from the saints. So again, when you see someone playing fast and loose with fundamental doctrines, uh, begin just by praying for their repentance, their softening to receive humbly what has been passed down. But again, likewise, look into your own heart. Are you pushing against some sort of aspect of orthodox teaching? Are you wanting to refashion something that fits better into 21st century sentiments and molds? Those types of things going on in your own heart are kind of like those, those dash lights. That when they go off, it could be a problem. If By the way, if your check engine light is blinking, it's a big problem I hear. Right? And so those things, when you start playing with the person and work of Jesus Christ, it's a flashing check engine light. Like this is this is a pull over to the side of the road, call for help sort of issue. This is the last hour. Antichrists are afoot. What do they look like? They pull out of biblical community. They deny fundamental doctrines. And then the, and the third idea is just they undermine holy living. Verse 26 says, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. Verse 29 says, because if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. What came first, the chicken or the egg? What comes first? Does someone reject biblical community and fundamental doctrines and then start living an unrighteous life? Or does someone start living an unrighteous life and then pull out of biblical community, and reject fundamental doctrines. In my personal experience, both. If you read the history of religion, the history of Christianity, you see both. Uh, In fact, I really appreciate the honesty of a famous writer named Aldous Huxley. So you know Aldous Huxley. He wrote Brave New World. Uh, he, He himself was honest. He noted that decades ago, Many people left Christianity because they didn't like its opposition to sexual freedom. And a quote that he gave in a a different work called Ends and Means, he wrote this. This is we, he's speaking personally, this is what we did, our movement. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. We objected to political and economic systems because it was unjust There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people, and at the same time justifying ourselves in our political and erotical revolt. We could deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. So he's just being honest. He didn't want moral constraints, and so he took away meaning and morality, and to his credit, he's honest. Maybe to our discredit, we do this too, but we just don't admit it. That we find ways to justify what we're doing. Now, the Apostle John is going to think otherwise. He's going to talk about orthodoxy, which is called right doctrine, leads to orthopraxy, which is right practice, godly living. Right, The humble, those who are humble, they desire to obey God. They desire to have a growing knowledge of God. This love of truth and this love of righteous living stay united for those who walk with the Lord. Now Jesus gave a similar kind of warning about Antichrist uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. This is toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter seven, verse fifteen. He puts it this way He says, Watch out, Matthew seven fifteen, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thornbrushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruits. One of the ways that we try to discern if someone's an antichrist is just by the holiness or lack of holiness of their life. Are they growing in godliness and love, mercy and justice? Do they bear the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and the like? Is that that who they are? Are they growing in those things? We're not looking for perfection. We're looking for a trajectory of Christ-likeness. And when it's absent, we should watch out. I would say the same thing in our own heart. When we're struggling, there isn't a trajectory of growth and godliness. Right? Call the tow truck. Pull over the side of the road. Ask for help. So again, take stock right now just on this issue of denying or, excuse me, undermining holy living. Do you have influential people in your life that are modeling and encouraging righteous living? Do they speak words of peace or war? Do they push you toward obedience to Jesus or an obsession with politics or movies or video games? Do the TV shows and YouTube videos that grab your attention undermine holy living or cheer you toward a righteous life? Antichrists are near; it is the last hour. They are afoot, and yet in all this, John says, "Let's let, things are going to be okay." Look at look at verse twenty-five. I don't highlight verses very often in my Bible anymore because they always bleed under the other page. So when I highlight a verse, it's because, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to risk the bleed. <laughs> verse 25 says, and this is what he promised us, eternal life. That was a treasure verse for me this week. In the midst of the, the, the warnings and the dangers and the risks and the doubts and the fears and the sadness and the heart-wrenching experience when I see people walk away, This is what he promised us, eternal life. God wants to offer us peace. John wants to motivate us to rest in peace. Why? Because we're not defenseless. Yes, there are antichrists at the last hour, but most of this text is about the anointing God gives us for the last hour. What in the world is an anointing? Verse 20, go back to that. Verse 20, it says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. So this word anointing, right, is the same word from which we get Christ. It's chrism, right? And Christ is Messiah. It's anointed, right? So we have an anointing from God, Jesus is the prophesied anointed one. All those who trust in God's sent anointed one are anointed. By whom? By whom? We're anointed by God with the Holy Spirit. He anoints us. In the Old Testament, kings and prophets were anointed by oil, and the pouring of the oil on the head symbolized God's anointing, God's spirit, God's blessing to use this person. So, you know, just remember, right, there's all these risks in the world, but you have been anointed. If I didn't like the people who clean this, i just keep pouring it over, because you're, there's, there's always overflow. But you are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. You have been anointed by God. There might be all these dark contaminants out there, but what is in you, it says in 1 John 4.4, 4, is greater than he who is in the world. You're anointed. God comes to abide in you. Right? Christian, you are anointed one. You are a part of Messiah Jesus. Christian, you are anointed as well. And through this anointing, we're able to withstand all of these seeming threats out there. In fact, What this text says is what the Antichrist does, what the antichrists do, is the exact opposite of what the anointing does. Because what does the anointing do? The anointing, the, the work of the Holy Spirit, draws us into biblical community. The anointing causes us to treasure and know God's truths. The anointing empowers us to live righteous lives. Let me just walk back through this passage in some of the same verses, but show how the anointing does help us. Verse 19 said, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. What the Holy Spirit does, what the anointing does, is it gives you a sense of belonging with your brothers and sisters. That's what the anointing is to do. It says, this is, these are my peeps. These are my people. And, and the anointing keeps us united. I mean, without the Holy Spirit, this would be a really ugly, dangerous, messy, chaotic place. But the anointing is trying and calling and motivating and stirring us to stay united. When the Apostle Paul, earlier in the New Testament, talks about the body of Christ, Right? He says, You all have been filled, but in, in being filled with the Holy Spirit, you're brought into this body. Like, we are as interconnected as the bicep and the tricep, right? We are as necessary for each other as the lung and the heart, the brain and the, I don't know, give me another organ. <laughs> right? That's how united we are. Like, that's what the Holy Spirit creates this community and this body. Admittedly, there's times in this body there's things that are not healthy that have to be worked on together, but even that is the Holy Spirit working to heal and restore and reshape. I mean, I, I know and expect that there is some healing to be done over this past year. What, to, For the Holy Spirit, that anointing to give us a desire to stay in biblical community, work through relational issues, issues of doubt, issues of mistrust, but I have peace that he's going to do that because it's what he does. It's what he is doing. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts us when we sin against a brother or sister in, in Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who motivates us to go and pursue reconciliation. It's the Holy Spirit that gives the grace in the heart of that believer to forgive the offending party. Like That's all of God, and that's what the Holy Spirit does. He, he holds us, and he keeps us in biblical community. What else does the anointing do? What else does the Holy Spirit do? He calls us to doctrinal fidelity. Verse 20 says, But you have the anointing from the Holy One, and as such you know the truth. He says, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And no lie comes from the truth. Jump down to verse 27. It says, as for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you. I want you to notice you don't do anything for it to remain for the Holy Spirit to remain in you. This is a this is God has the Holy Spirit remain in you. And you don't need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing, he teaches you about all things, and as the anointing is real, not counterfeit. And just as it has taught you, now remain there. Remain in him. Let me just make a few observations so we can understand these verses. Uh, first, just to recall. The, uh, the original Greek, all of the yous that we see here, they're y'alls. I think it's really easy to misread this text if you don't know that John's saying, you all know the truth. God teaches all of you, right? So it's you all know the truth, and you all don't need anyone to teach you. And so it's speaking to this larger cr- Christian community, John is affirming that God's Spirit leads, keeps, and calls the church to doctrinal fidelity. I think, not nah, I think, I would say this. God forbid a person think they don't need the greater truth to know truth, or greater church to know truth. God forbid, like, all I need is me. Uh, in fact, if you read some of the history of growing Christian cults, that's usually where it starts. All, all I need is me, and all I need is my Bible. Um. This promise is made to the church and those who are a part of the church. And similarly, when it says, you don't need anyone to teach you, John is not saying you don't need human teachers. For starters, John is teaching. This is a letter of instruction. And what we know from Scripture is we receive these letters, and then we're to instruct others with them. But this is probably what was happening in that that time. Most likely, John is addressing a common practice among false teachers in the first century and very much active today. He's warning people that you don't need some sort of mystical guru to walk with God. There aren't these secret, never-before-seen truths about the faith that only one woman or man has discovered. John wants people to stick with the truth of the Bible that the Holy Spirit has revealed to the whole church throughout all time. Right? This means we don't need some sort of super, like really super smart pastor from California to know the Bible. We don't need some super slick YouTuber who knows, the, has discovered this Bible code that no one got for the first 19 centuries of Christianity. You, church, you know. And so, what we need is a faithful church clinging to God's sufficient word, holding fast to the ancient doctrines of the faith. I am so thankful for the Sunday school teachers in this church. You help kids know the truth. I'll take all of you before I take some other pastor in town or across the country. You know the truth, you know this God, you know the word, and you're gracefully teaching kids, and they can know the truth by the Holy Spirit. We don't need gurus. We have God and the Holy Spirit and the work of the body and the gifts of this body to know God's word together. And the anointing calls us together to doctrinal fidelity, to knowing this together. And when someone comes in and plays fast and loose, guess what? Y'all know. If I ever come up here and get fancy, fa- uh, fancy with God's word and try to be uniquely doctrinal in a way that never before, you should rebuke me and maybe have to fire me. And that's okay. Not okay. That's better than okay. That's the right thing to do. You know the truth. You can trust that God will lead us to hold fast to what's already been passed down to us. So finally, one thing. Another thing. You can trust that the anointing will lead you to righteous living. The anointing will keep you pursuing the Lord God in faithful obedience. And that's what verses 28 and 29 say there at the end. He says, and now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, so continue in Christ, when Christ appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Some of your translations say that you won't shrink back when he comes. There's no, you won't have shame at the coming of Jesus. You won't have, you won't fear him. You'll long for it. You'll have confidence when Jesus comes. Verse 29 says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How are we born of God? By the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, this anointing, when we're born of God, it leads us to righteous, he leads us to righteous living. And so John is concluding these words by just saying, stay close to God. Remain close to Jesus. Remain in prayer. Remain in Christian fellowship. Uh, Press on in righteousness when we fail and we will. See for reference 1 John chapter 1. Confess your sins. He's faithful and just. Forgive us. it cleanses us of all unrighteousness. And then we press on. John repeats one word six times in this short little passage, and it's that word remain or translated abide or continue. It's a word that relates to staying close and holding fast. And those who remain close to Christ and his church have hope, but those who fade, those who are led astray, they don't have hope. In some ways it sounds a little too simple, right? The Christian life is all about staying close to Jesus. It's about holding on to Jesus. You know, I was thinking this week about Lois Lane. Have you ever noticed that Lois Lane, as long as she's near... Clark Kent, nothing bad ever happens. But in every TV show and in every movie, she always like I'm going to go do some you know personal investigative reporting, reporting. And then what happens? Something horrific. If she just stays close to Clark Kent, all goes well. But when that little lady goes off to solve the world by herself, Superman has to come back, come in and save her. Now, praise be to God, there are antichrists at this last hour, but more significantly, there is an anointing for this last hour. And at the very end, Jesus will come and save us. Even when we wander away, he'll save us. So friends, hold on. God's got you. To close, just I love a, a man by the name Richard Baxter. He was a 17th century English pastor. He lived through some wild, turbulent days in England. He even had to have, have a stretch in prison in his 50s. But in his closing moments, they think this, these, the, the last words he ever said on earth were this I have pain, but I have peace. I have peace. I have pain, but I have peace. I have peace. In this world, there's going to be pain, trouble, but we can have peace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as John has warned, uh, there's all sorts of things to lead us astray. Um, Ideas, even people, people who were once a part of uh, the Christian community who go out, um, those things are out there. And yet, Lord, uh, by your grace, through the filling and gift of the Holy Spirit, we have been anointed to face every trial in this last hour, in these last days. And so we can have peace. And that we and let us never forget what you have promised us—eternal life. What you have accomplished has been applied, and what has been applied will be made complete at the return of the Lord Jesus. Until then, Lord, help us to hold on to the Lord as He holds on to us. Thank you that His holding on to us is more important than ours holding on to Him. He is strong, he is faithful. In fact, when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Praise be to God, in Jesus' name, amen.